0: Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Most Americans have had one or more shots of the flu and COVID vaccines, and, but new this year are the first shots to protect older adults from respiratory syncytial virus, also known as RSV a lesser-known threat whose toll in hospitalizations and deaths may rival that of the flu. Federal health officials are hoping that widespread adoption of these immunizations will head off another triple-demic of respiratory illnesses like the one seen last winter. Today, my guest is Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. Dr. Benjamin will provide an update on the new COVID-19 vaccine. He'll discuss risks for more variants and how to live with COVID-19 and related viruses. He'll also discuss the flu and RSV vaccines and why older adults need them to avoid health complications and stay healthy. So welcome, Dr. Benjamin, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Benjamin, I want to start out by having you give us a tutorial about why it's important to vaccinate individuals. How do they work? And particularly on why they're especially important for older adults.
1: Well, you know, we live in a world um, in which we are um, cohabitating this planet with lots of microorganisms. Uh, And we're exposed to them each and every day. And some of them are actually beneficial some of the ones that live in our gut that help us digest our food. Um, You know, people take probiotics as a way to try to help regulate their um, absorption of food and their digestion, but some of them make me make us sick. And um, those that make us sick, particularly those that make us very sick, uh, we have figured out that if you give someone a vaccine, which I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about what that means in a moment, um we can reduce how sick the disease makes us so for example all of us you know grew up with uh, many many childhood diseases measles mumps chickenpox and most of us certainly my generation uh, you know got um, vaccinated for those and what we what the vaccine does is it basically gives you a weak version um of that infectious agent um, whether it's the flu or measles or mumps or the chickenpox, um, you know, virus. And it stimulates our bodies to create a defense, an immune response, which protects us from getting really sick. And so they're very effective um, protection agents or therapeutics. Um, sometimes you only need one shot. Sometimes you need several over year over years. Um, But they're very, very effective in protecting us from getting very sick and dying from infectious diseases, which at one point um, in our our history on this planet uh, ravished um, humankind.
0: Obviously, you're telling us it's, you know, vaccines are safe and this kind of uh, situation, it's an important factor to get vaccines. But why are they especially important for older
1: adults? Well, as I mentioned, these vaccines help teach our body, um, to create antibodies, um, and stimulate special cells that come out and and can kill, um, these viruses or bacteria before, um, they ravish our bodies. But of course, like everything else, um, the older we get, um, the least effective our immune system is. So for those of us who are, you know, are very, very healthy, A normal part of aging is that your immune system, like everything else, wears out a little bit. And what the vaccines do is they rev that um, that immune system up. And so they basically remind the immune system that you know this you know virus or bacterium, and particularly when we're talking about flu or COVID or RSV, reminds our bodies that we've seen this you know infectious agent before and again, teaches us, teaches our bodies how to fight it off. And so as we get older, um, that memory of the ability to do that wanes some, and the vaccine um, re-stimulates that protection.
0: Would it be likely that within this population then, that there might be more side effects from the vaccines if we encourage this population to get them
1: you know, for almost everybody, um, the you know they do a lot of studies on these vaccines. So before um, people, you know, we we give people therapeutics like this, and we do this for lots of drugs, of course. But vaccines are one of the most deeply studied uh, therapeutics that we have. It's also one of the therapeutics because of the way the system works. We have a mechanism to report untoward um, effects. So for most people. Um, we tolerate these vaccines very well, even when we get older. Uh, And in fact, uh, for example, with the flu shot, they actually increase the type of vaccine that you get so that you actually get almost a double dose uh, as you get older because you need that much in order to stimulate your body to protect you from from influenza. So while you don't necessarily get more complications, Obviously, the older you get, the more medications you have, the more underlying the diseases that you have. And so we always encourage people to, to have a conversation with their healthcare provider to make sure that uh, these vaccines are not contraindicated uh, as you get older.
0: Okay. Well, that kind of gives us an overview then about vaccines. So Let's focus on COVID and more recently, the fact that there's an uptick in the number of coronavirus cases. Talk about that. Are, are hospitalizations of these of individuals, are they getting COVID? Is it increasing? What's the situation and what do we need to be
1: doing? Well, we are having a mild surge of COVID and just remind ourselves what, where, where we came from. So in December of 2019, uh, we first became aware of this brand new virus that was circulating um, uh, around the world, and because our bodies had not seen this particular type of um, coronavirus before, and by the way, um, this virus COVID is in the family uh, of virus that causes the common cold. Um, that we've seen coronaviruses before. We had. An outbreak of a disease several years ago, I think about 2003, called SARS, SARS one, and, and so you know we've we've seen this family of viruses before. Uh, having said that, we hadn't seen this kind of strain of this virus before, and so our bodies had to learn how to protect itself from it, and the vaccine was the solution to that uh, to that challenge. And of course, we had three peaks of it, um, just about each year for the last two years. And so it's not surprising that we're now having um, another rise in this virus uh, this year. Now, what's been interesting over since this first entered our society, each um, year, the peaks have gotten less and less. Um, You know, we had the first wave, then a really big peak. um, Then the next wave was a little lower the next year. Uh, and this next one was a little lower, but 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 modest. And the one we're having now is is a bump up. And yes, there are more people that are being hospitalized. There are more people that are getting sick from it. And the reason for that is that um the vac- Even though about seventy five percent of the population has either been vaccinated uh, at least one shot uh, and or had gotten COVID, um, we now know that this. Protection wanes over time. Um, Somewhere around four or five months, you get a dramatic reduction in the protection uh, from the vaccine or from even having had COVID before. And in that case, again, you need to be revaccinated. And, you know, this is not an uncommon phenomenon. I remind folks that, you know, when you get your tetanus shot, you tend to get it every 10 years. Uh, Again, to remind your body that you need to get it. When you're kids, you got, um, three shots of uh, of your measles vaccine over time, um, at least in your your initial series, to, to help teach your body how to do that. And w- when you have a flu shot every year, again, the strains the strains change every year, and this is exactly what we're seeing. Now, what's interesting is that we don't quite yet know what the periodicity, or at least the frequency, of COVID is yet. It hasn't been around long enough to really establish a pattern. So like flu, we know it comes basically once a year, usually in the fall and winter. COVID it's not real clear whether it's going to come once a year or twice a year. Um, I think most people are kind of betting that it will uh, be at at least once a year, Um, but we're still just not sure. And so what we're now seeing is the bimodal pattern, at least the twice a year pattern that we saw the last couple years. Um, from COVID. And so it's, again, it's partly because our protections wane over time.
0: And so this new COVID-19 vaccine that folks are getting, does that protect against the new variants or does that protect against every
1: kind of variant? The short answer is yes. Um, This current um, vaccine um, protects us against the new strain that's circulating. Um, one of the challenges has been about this virus is that it, it mutates pretty easily. and But the predominant strain is still in kind of the Omicron family of viruses. And so even though you've heard a lot about um, the, the new strains that are coming out, the predominant strain that's circulating is very close to the, the vaccine that um, we're now offering. And it seems to work fairly well to uh, protect us. Now, remember, nothing's 100%. But it does dramatically reduce your chance of getting really sick, uh, and then ultimately dying by getting revaccinated. So I encourage everybody to get um, this new updated vaccine.
0: Okay. And let's talk a little bit about distribution. I mean, we've been hearing that maybe it's available in pharmacies, Do you have any sense in terms of whether folks need to make an appointment now or can they just walk in? Uh, Are they also available in public health departments? Where are the possibilities in terms of getting the vaccine?
1: So what's different this year than in the previous two years is that we have primarily moved the vaccination process to the private sector uh, in terms of both distribution as well as payment. So that first of all, if you're insured, and of course, most seniors over the age of 65 in our country do have uh, insurance coverage, and Medicare and Medicaid do cover uh, the vaccine. In general, you should just need to call your either your healthcare provider or um, the um, retail clinic where you probably got vaccinated last couple years, um, and make an appointment, and you can you can get vaccinated. Now, there are some chat. There have been some challenges. Challenge number one. Uh, has been making sure that it, it's in stock. And challenge number two has been a little bit of confusion about who pays. And even though Medicare covers it, um, there have been some issues where you have dual coverage and you may have a wraparound policy or you have uh, a private sector policy um, and, and Medicare. There's always been some question as to, you know, there have been some recent questions about who the first payer is but you should be able to get it. It's just a matter of, you know, the people working out the paperwork. Now, health departments, um, as well as community health centers, and many of the free clinics that are involved in the federal vaccine program um, can vaccinate people who don't have any other means of getting vaccinated and don't have a means to pay. So if you're uninsured, you you should be able to get uh, vaccinated uh, in those centers as well. So. We should not really have a gap in coverage uh, this year, but of course, the fact that we've now moved from what was essentially a single-payer universal healthcare system for COVID back to the usual mechanism we have, which is a bit, you know, fractionated, um, it creates a little bit more confusion, but people ought to be able to get vaccinated.
0: I think one thing of the question that often comes up, Dr. Benjamin, is about if somebody's already had COVID, when should they get the vaccine? You mentioned that, you know, if you get the vaccine, you won't get as ill, you won't need to be hospitalized, and death is not likely to occur. But it's like, well, gee, don't I have some immunity already because I had the COVID-19? Shall I wait? What do we need to know about when to get it and what, if, what happens if you had COVID?
1: The secret is um, that if you if you've recently had COVID, wait three months. Can you get it sooner than that? Yes, you can. But CDC has recommended that um, people who recently had COVID to wait three months. They have also said that you should still get um, the updated vaccine. And part of the reason for that is that we know what the strain of the updated vaccine protects you from. We don't know what strain you had when you got reinfected with COVID. So we believe that... Um, Getting someone the, the um, vaccine uh, is the right thing, and really brings you as close to being up to date as possible.
0: I think the other part of that question then is also boosters. What should we know about boosters versus the the actual vaccine itself?
1: Yes, I think one of the reasons we're using the term "updated vaccine" is to try to avoid the term "boosters." Um, And it just got complicated for people, you know, whether you needed one, whether you needed two, which number you had. I think the way to conceptually think about this is that most people will probably need. And again, I say probably because, you know, one of the things that um, we've in public have had had to become a little cautious about is giving people answers that sound like we know exactly all the answers. What we know today is that the updated um, vaccine will protect you for at least five or six months. It may protect us for the year. It remains to be seen. For most people, we'll probably only need to get this updated vaccine. And most likely, you know, just like the flu shot, you'll get it again next year. For some people who have a lot of underlying chronic diseases, who have some autoimmune diseases, or diseases where their immune system isn't functioning, and maybe some other kinds of cancer, you may need to get uh, vaccinated more frequently, and w- encourage people to consult with their physicians um, about that. But for most of us, uh, this you know for this this time around, this updated vaccine should be fine. Now, I, I could be telling you a different story uh, five or six months from now when we see a different experience again, because several things can happen. Number one the virus can mutate to a different form and one where this vaccine isn't as effective. Number two, um, we could um, discover that the vaccine isn't as durable as we think it is. Meaning durability means how long it protects you. Right now we're, we're saying, you know, five to six months Um, understanding that it begins to, your immunity begins to erode again, about, you know, four or five months after you've gotten the shot. Um, But in general, we think that it protects people for a fairly nice period of time. And the answer right now is it's called the updated vaccine. We should get it. And, um, and then, you know, if we decide four or five, six months from now that we need to update a vaccine for a specialized population, people who are older or people who have a lot of chronic diseases, which make the vaccine less effective for them. Uh, effective, but less effective for them, then the healthcare community would probably recommend that you get another shot. But that that's going to be a much, much smaller subset of people.
0: And I wanted to zero in on when you said about special populations, because I had asked you a little bit earlier about older adults who are living in assisted living or some kind of retirement community. What would you tell us? I would imagine that this is even more vital because that can quickly if people are not vaccinated. Would you agree?
1: Yes. You know, the, the concern about that is that people those two things are going on when you're living in an assisted living or conjugate setting. Number one, those people tend to be older. They tend to have more chronic diseases. Therefore, they tend to be more susceptible to infectious diseases. And therefore, you know, the emphasis ought to be on vaccinating them as quickly and early as we possibly can. And that's true for people living in assisted living Long term care facilities, people who are living in in prisons, um, jails, people who are living um, in group homes, uh, anyone living with a bunch of other people. You know, we spread our germs to one another when we live in a conjugate setting like that. Uh, And so that's the reason. Uh, And then you add on the top of that the fact that those populations tend to have more diseases, which put them more at risk that if they get infected, Uh, either because of the infection or um, a um, stimulation of their underlying disease, you know, heart disease or lung disease or asthma or, you know, their diabetes, Um, they will get complications from their underlying disease as well. So that's the reason we vaccinate people in those settings as a first priority.
0: And I wanted to get one more question in before our break, and that is because The other thing that all of us are hearing is, well, when you get the COVID vaccine, you could also get the flu shot and the RSV vaccine at the same time. Some people say yes. Some people say no. What would you advise?
1: I think you can get the flu shot and RSV shot at the same time. Um, I did that. Um, I also got my COVID shot and my flu shot at the same time um, a a couple years ago. So um, I I do encourage that if you're um, age 60 or older, you should get RSV. Um, you may, may want to consult with your healthcare provider if there's any concerns or questions about that. Uh, but you can also get your flu shot for influenza at the same time. Uh, or if for some reason you've already gotten your RSV and you want to go in and get your your flu shot and your COVID shot at the same time, uh, you can do that. You usually you know get one in one, one arm and the other in the other arm.
0: So your body knows how it's supposed to react when you've got these three vaccines coming in at the same time. Is that true?
1: It turns out that our bodies are pretty smart. They know they can, they can usually differentiate these viruses from one another. Now, let me tell you, here's where, here's where people, some of my, my, my really, really expert colleagues who know much more about this than I do. Um, it is true that sometimes um, when you get infected with one virus, um, it kind of predominates the response. And so if you have a concern about that, you know, it's okay to um, spread them out. Usually, a week or two between the shots. It, you know, the, the real issue here is convenience more than anything else. Uh, if you're somebody who knows that when you get a um, you get your flu shot every time you get it, you get a really sore arm, and you don't want both arms to be sore, then you know it, it makes sense to go in and and do that if if your schedule and your your allows you to do that. Um, More than anything else. Um, Now, there are some theoretical um, situations where people say one, you know, if you immunize people with two or more vaccines at the same time. There's competition. Uh, I remind those of you who have been in the military that we used to go in the military and they would line us up and we would get lots of vaccines at the same time. It can be done.
0: Well, this is a good time for a short break We're talking about the vaccines that we need to get in preparation for this winter, the RSV, the flu, and the uh, COVID-19. And our guest today is Dr. Georges Benjamin, who is the Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. And you're listening to WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're having an excellent discussion today about vaccines and what we need to have this fall to prepare for the winter. And we're talking with Dr. Georges Benjamin, the executive director of the American Public Health Association. First half, we talked a lot about COVID. And we'd like to move into why it's important for these other vaccines as well. We know more about the flu than RSV. So, so, Dr. Benjamin, let's talk about flu shots. I mean, we hear about it every year. Lots of people get it. Some of them don't. But we want to particularly focus on older adults. Why are flu shots important? When should we get it? How long is it effective? Side effects? What do we need to know about flu shots?
1: Well, influenza is a disease that's been around for many, many years, and um, it changes at, um, each and every year. You get a, you know, the circulating strains uh, of this virus changes uh, year to year. Uh, and because of that, they change the formulation um, of uh, influenza to kind of match what they see that's circulating in the, in the community. And interestingly enough, Um, what we do for that is we track what's happening in the various hemispheres. So, you know, when the Northern Hemisphere is having its summer, the Southern Hemisphere is having its winter. Uh, And we look and see what kind of flu is occurring down in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, And then we use that to inform what we think is going to hit us when our winter comes. And flu season peaks in the um, midwinter, so you're taking talking late you know, December, early January, February, you start seeing the peak of, 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 of influenza. It takes about two weeks for the flu shot to really take its best effect. So sometime late September, early October uh, begins to protect you when we begin to see a large amount of influenza circulating in the community. Uh, the problem is, is that it, re- it can result in thousands of deaths each and every year from viral pneumonia or from complications of other diseases um, when, you get the, uh, when you get flu. So we really believe that people should get um, protected from influenza, both because it protects you from that disease itself um, to a great, a great degree and because it also protects you from complications from flu. You know, tragically, only about half the population gets their flu shot every year. So we really need to do a better job of that.
0: And one thing that I was wondering, because I, my husband and I got the the flu shot, is there a special kind of flu shot that for people who are older adults versus maybe individuals who are younger or maybe even children? Is is there a different kind of vaccine in terms of strength?
1: There is a um, basically a stronger shot for adults, um, particularly older adults, um, that, that is recommended. And so when you go in, um, usually, you know, the, the healthcare provider recognizes that, but you want to make sure you ask for the shot that's specifically for, uh, for older individuals, because it, it, um, helps your body, um, remember, um, how to fight off the influenza. That's the best way to think about it, uh, and creates a better defense for you. You know, um, You don't get a lot of side effects um, from flu shot. Most people get a sore arm, uh, sometimes some bruising, um, a little swelling. Um, You can get a a low-grade fever. You can get really kind of a, a, um, for some people, and it doesn't happen to to everybody, but some people actually get kind of a a um, viral-like illness where they get a little fever. They they feel um, a little under the weather for 24 hours or so. Most of that goes away with keeping well hydrated and you know taking aspirin or Tylenol, depending on uh, what you use to control your flu-like illnesses when you have them or control a fever. Uh, but most people do quite well. Are, are there ever serious side effects from any kind of shot? You know, there's certainly rarely, rarely um, can have complications. Um, there are people who are allergic to um, um, the flu shot, and it tends to be a, a, a egg allergy. And so they will ask you questions about whether or not you've had any allergies to um, um, egg-like products, um, dairy products. They'll ask you whether or not you've had um, complications from a flu shot or any kind of vaccine in the past. Uh, And hopefully you will answer those questions honestly. uh, And then they'll have to judge whether or not it's appropriate for you to get the shot. But most people have no challenges at all with uh, getting their, their flu shot.
0: And I'm glad you brought that up, Dr. Benjamin, because I think sometimes people think that because they get this reaction, that the shot that they got was the actual flu germs or however you want to, you know, the viruses. Explain to our listeners what people are getting, because I think that that sometimes may be a deterrent for folks not wanting to get the flu shot. And so what's the vaccine versus you know, when you're actually getting the flu?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an attenuated um, a virus. I mean, it's a virus that, that's, that's been, um, all, all the, the features that make you uh, very sick um, have been removed, um, as they say, attenuated. And so for some people, it, you know, you do get a, a big influ- inflammatory reaction from it, um, but you're not getting influenza. In other words, you're not getting a disease which makes um, you infectious to others. Uh, you might be getting um, some side effects that, again, don't make you feel well for 24, 48 hours, but that's not, um, not the same thing. You're not, in it, you're not infectious from that process. Uh, and what it does, of course, is it revs up your body so that when you do get exposed to that um, virus, you're much less likely to get infected and be able to infect others or get really sick from it.
0: Good advice. We definitely need to get those flu shots as well as the COVID shots. So I'd now like to turn to RSV. That's the new one this year that people have not heard about, at least as far as uh, I know. And so we want to hear from you. Explain to us what is RSV? How important is it, especially for older adults? You already mentioned that it can be given with the other two
1: vaccines. Well, you know, it, it's it's been around for a while, a long time. It's not, This is not new. And I think the way for po- folks to think about this is that it often got characterized as viral pneumonia. Uh, and um, we know that um, the focus on RSV, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, has been primarily on kids, um, particularly newborns and the reason for that is that it is one of these really devastating uh, viral pneumonias and viral diseases in newborn babies because their immune systems are still developing um, after you're born and unless your mother your parent you know had um recent exposure to irsv you 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 know you really weren't protected the babies weren't really protected um, from maternal antibodies Um, and so babies got really sick um, and you know, a lot of babies would come into emergency departments, young infants. Uh, all of us, you know, who have been grandparents know, or even parents know, the the, the croupy baby who had a little viral bronchitis or viral pneumonia. A lot of those infections were RSV, um, and so a lot of the inf- you know the research uh, and the emphasis has been on RSV in children. And the good news is there's now um, a vaccine um, and some therapies um, to. Um, help children and actually vaccinate pregnant moms um, in the last um, uh, trimester of pregnancy to, so that they'll get antibodies to protect the babies. Having said that, they've also now um, done some r- really, really good work on vaccines in adults. So there now is an approved RSV vaccine for adults. And that's because we had many cases, thousands of cases of adults who got an RSV pneumonia, it was usually called a viral pneumonia of some kind, uh, often um, pneumonia of unknown origin, mostly because by the time they actually got the diagnosis, it was, um, um, you either had recovered or tragically had succumbed to it, but now we can vaccinate adults for it. And so we ought to be able to reduce both the morbidity, meaning the number of people who get sick and mortality, the number of people who die from RSV by giving people this vaccine. And we're recommending this vaccine for, folks who are over, basically over the age of 60 or uh, 65 for sure.
0: In addition to that, it seems to be pretty generic in terms of recommending for anybody over a certain age, but if you had some kind of pre-existing condition, say like uh, you know COPD or some other kind of respiratory health condition, would that be even more of a reason to have it and Conversely, then, if you don't, you didn't have that, would that kind of make you not as likely to need it? Or is it across the board, everybody who's over 60, no matter what your health condition is, should get RSV?
1: Well, in general, I think that almost everybody ought to get it. Now, there are people who are are, are probably more in need. And you mentioned some of them, people who have chronic respiratory conditions, who have bronchitis, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, who have asthma, Um, who have pulmonary hypertension, for example, and whose respiratory systems are already compromised. Um, The person who has one lung, uh, the person who has heart disease, heart failure, and diabetes. You don't clear infections as easily um, as someone who doesn't have those chronic diseases. We also say because this is a new vaccine, it is being recommended for an older population of people, again, who have um, a series of other underlying diseases. I think the CDC is recommending that people consult with their healthcare provider if they have any questions whatsoever, and and I recommend that as well. Now, you know, I as I mentioned, I got the RSV vaccine. I, you know, um, I'm 71. Um, I um, am active. I'm around a lot of people. Um, I, quite frankly, um, wanted to avoid getting a a significant respiratory illness, uh, and because you know, because I travel a lot, I spend a lot of time on planes and in big meetings, um, and so I, I felt it was important to protect myself. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly, I was perfectly comfortable doing that. Um, I'm also a physician, so I I got a chance to you know do the do my homework on the va- vaccine and decided it was, it was it was it was something that, at least for me, um, was the right vaccine to take.
0: And I was wondering, we talked already about the cost for the COVID-19 vaccine. Talk a little bit about the cost of the flu shots and the RSV vaccines. Are they covered by Medicare, other insurance? What should folks know?
1: Yeah, Medicare and Medicaid certainly cover them. Um, RSV, um, COVID vaccines, and, and influenza. Under the Affordable Care Act, all of these vaccines should be viewed as preventive in nature, and therefore there should be no out-of-pocket cost to individuals. Now, as you know, there are some people who have insurance plans that may not be as robust as Medicare, Medicaid, or the, health, the plans out of the health exchange. And so um, if you have a plan which does not offer vaccines, um, there are not a lot of them out there, but there are people who bought skinny plans or who may have an employer-based plan for which um, this is not a covered benefit. Um, again, there are not a lot of them out there, but that may be the case. Then you are functionally uninsured, and you should be able to go through uh, the federal program to allow your, you to get vaccinated for for COVID. And um, we have a um, a vaccine um, program for children for flu. We don't have a really great adult vaccine. Um, program, but in most cases, people should be able to get vaccinated for influenza. And what about the RSV? RSV might be a little trickier. You should be able to get it, um, but you may want to um, talk with your your health insurer if there are any questions whatsoever.
0: Okay. Well, I just wanted to kind of crystal ball a little bit. Uh, you've told us a lot about the past of what's been happening here do you see that in the future, it's inevitable that most adults will get COVID-19 and will there be short and long-term effects uh, that older adults will have to deal with? Uh, and what about vaccines? What do you and your public health colleagues see in terms of this COVID? And you can also talk about flu and RSV as well in terms of what we have to look forward to in the coming years.
1: Well, flu flu is here to stay. Uh, RSV is here to stay, um, and COVID most likely. Um, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you. Um, remember, SARS one just totally went away, um, and this is SARS, um, you know, two. Um, but it does not look like it's going to go away, and we have pockets of this virus around the world. Um, the fact that it was is global it was a pandemic. We have lots of Places where this virus is still um, going through communities um, at a rapid rate. So I don't anticipate this um, uh, virus going away. We know that it mutates fairly frequently. Um, the good news is that in most cases, um, it is mutated to a form where it is it may cause um, more infections, but it's not more lethal. But that could change, uh, and so. The short answer is, I don't know for sure what the future of COVID-19 as a infectious agent around the world is. Um, but what I can tell you is, um, we have only eliminated one virus, you know, which is smallpox, off the face of the earth. Um, and everything else is still pretty much around. So um, the likelihood is that it's going to be around here. Now, the other question is whether or not we will need a new vaccine vaccine. Um, each and every year to protect ourselves from it. And I can tell you what the process will be. We will do it just like we do with influenza vaccine. We will continue to look at the strains that are circulating all around the world. And we will use that to inform decisions about whether or not to reformulate the vaccine differently, meaning a different strain will be used in the vaccine. Um, Whether it's one strain or two strains um, remains to be seen. Um, but the likelihood is that next year, this time, we will be talking about revaccinating the population again if um, the past is prelude to the future in any kind of meaningful way. So I think the short answer to this, so I hope don't confuse people, is COVID is still here. It has not gone away. It is unlikely to go away. And it's likely that we will need a vaccine um, to continue to prevent us from getting really sick and dying in the future.
0: Well, that's a good segue into talking about your organization. I think, uh, you know, for the past three or four years, we've heard much more about public health officials, public health workers, but people may not be familiar with your organization, the American Public Health Association. So talk more about the mission of APHA, who are its members, And what kind of services and information that your organization is disseminating to the public?
1: Well, thank you, Cheryl. You know, the American Public Health Association has been around since 1872. Um, We're the nation's oldest public health association. Um, We are one of the original big four, the big four being the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, um, the American Nursing Association, and the American Public Health Association. And we um, represent anyone who's interested in public health. So um, interestingly enough, we have members from all three of our associations. The others, hospitals, doctors, and nurses who are members of our association. We represent over 30 different disciplines, um, epidemiologists, disease control specialists, health educators, public interest lawyers, social workers. Anyone who's really interested in the public's health can be a member. Uh, and join the American Public Health Association. Uh, our mission is um, right now to try to make sure that our nation is among the healthiest nations. We tried to build the capacity of the field to achieve that goal. So we do that through a range of educational activities. We have a big annual meeting, uh, which occurs each and every year. Uh, and we've had it every year. Um, we've had this meeting uh, except, by, I believe, once during world War, the beginning of World War II. Otherwise, APHA has, has had um, its annual meeting. Um, we bring, uh, these days, 13,000, 14,000 people to town when we have uh, a meeting. We have a small book company. We do educational texts on public health. Um, I have to brag about a couple of them. We have one called the Communicable Disease Manual, which is a book that um, every infectious disease person in the world carries in their pocket. Uh, it's a little book that lists all the infectious diseases and how to prevent them, and how to treat them if you get it. We have uh, another book called Standard Methods for Water and Wastewater, which is one of these bookstop books. You know the kind that every lab has on their on their shelf, and it is actually a partnership with uh, two other uh, water associations, and uh, we work with the Environmental Protection Agency. And I tell people that your water isn't clean until APHA says your water is clean, because what it does is it is the textbook that the laboratorians use to look and see what's in your water, whether it, if there's lead in the water or arsenic in the water or um, anything that um, you know um, shows up in water, the laboratory test to measure it is, um, the techniques are in that book so it, we do things like that and then we we educate the public we spend a lot of time talking to members of congress the administration advocating for good health through policies procedures and pushing for funding for those agencies and organizations that are designed to improve the health of the public and then finally like most public health organizations we're very much interested in the equity uh, aspects of this making sure that Everyone has access to equal access to care um, and equal access to health.
0: And as I understand it, Dr. Benjamin, there are state public health associations uh, around the country, since this program does get broadcast around the country.
1: Yes, we have affiliates in every state, um, state public health associations, And they are very much like APHA. They're multidisciplinary organizations, Whose mission is very much like APHA's, um, and they basically um, sign an agreement to work with us. Um, so there are over fifty uh, associations. One again, one for every state. There is uh, two in California because California is California. There's one in California North and California South. There are um, there's an association in Puerto Rico. We have affiliates um, again in all those places, but we also have partnerships. With other national associations, so there's for you know Canadian Public Health Association, a Cuban Public Health Association, a Mexican Public Health Association, a South African Public Health Association, a, um, a European Public Health Association, um, which encompasses a lot of the other national associations in in Europe, uh, and we partner with those international organizations as well.
0: Depending on which state uh, a person lives in might they be able to look up the website of that uh, state association and get resources? Are there written resources or programs that are, you know, webinars and that that are offered by the state public health association to learn more about
1: various issues? They, they are. And so, you know, our, our website is APHA.org. So www.APHA.org. And if you go to our website, you can get to um, you know the state websites, or you can Google. You know, for example, you can Google the Colorado Public Health Association um, and their website. You can you can find their website that way, and you can link on that. Um, many of them have webs- webinars and programs and materials um, um, that are useful to educate yourself. So, for example, on our website, we have a um, a website um, for COVID. Uh, We have a website for other infectious diseases, and so uh, we can go to those websites and get information um, to um, look up some of the things that I've said, and we also link to a lot of other authoritative websites. So if people are looking for authoritative information, you can come to our website and get to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's website or the National Institute of Health's website um, or any of our affiliates' websites by going through ours.
0: And I would be remiss if I didn't ask, since this program is Aging Matters, what's APHA doing that may be of interest to older adults? What are the, the issues that APHA and its members are focusing on to enhance the quality of life for
1: older adults? Well, let me say first that we actually have a section uh, of our membership that has a focus on, on aging in public health. Um, we've also recently published a book on aging and public health. We have um, built aging into just about everything that we do. Um, we look at things life across a lifespan. Um, and we think about um, seniors um, as um, and I, I'm, as now that I'm older, I, I think I'm older and wiser. Um, and we think about those people that uh, have this wisdom and we consult and engage with people. Um, each and every day, um, who are older than us and wiser than us. Uh, and we partner with organizations like um, AARP um, um, on, on, on programs every now and then um, to, um, to promote aging issues. One of the things that we did during the COVID pandemic was we focused a lot on efforts to get seniors vaccinated, um, to deal with issues around misinformation and disinformation, to make sure that seniors were getting the right information in a timely way, uh, and advocating for funding for programs for seniors.
0: And I I guess one of the things that I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about yet is, is prevention, because that's really, you know, so often we hear about chronic illnesses and conditions that older adults have, but the focus... I'm hearing you say, in connection with aging and public health, is preventing folks from getting sick in the first place, So there, uh, is there also a focus on like good diets or exercise or doing meaningful activities? Is that a part of APHA's focus on aging for older adults?
1: Prevention is a major component of what we think about and what we do every day. Um, you, you talked about those things that individuals can do to uh, improve their health. Uh, so that means obviously ideal, ideal, getting to ideal body weight as best that you can. And you know, that's a challenge um, for, for many of us, uh, but at least being active, being mobile as much as you can. Uh, the older you get, you know, those joints don't move as easily as they used to. And um, sometimes they hurt, but the idea is to try to get people to be as physically active as they can, particularly for seniors. That's very um, important. Um, Mental health and loneliness and being um, separated from the rest of society is a real problem right now and a growing problem, particularly among seniors. So I encourage uh, young people to engage with seniors so that um, seniors aren't left alone. Uh, I encourage seniors to partner with their other colleagues and friends who are seniors um, and get out of the house, get on the phone. Um, one of the things about um, learning to use a computer uh, is that a lot of seniors, of course, doing, doing COVID did learn to use computers. Um, and just because their grandkids wanted to talk to them on, on, uh, on their phones, um, many seniors had to learn to do that. And so I encourage that as just a, a way of staying connected. Connectedness is extremely important. Um, so ideal body weight, good diets um, are very important. I think it's also important to think about those societal things that make you um, that help you maintain wellness so that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about active transportation systems and systems that um, make sure that people have access to safe, uh, affordable foods in their community, making sure that uh, people have um, Uh, educational materials, that they can get access to authoritative materials to read. All those things that are important to uh, encourage this the human condition in such a way that people can be active and engaged. I think it's so important the older we get uh, because, you know, life, we all go through many changes in life. Um, And as we get older, many of the people that we used to know are not around anymore. Our ability to Get up and about becomes more limited. And so we have to find new ways to engage people, new ways to be mobile, new ways to um, um, support activities that we love to do before uh, when we were younger. And so I just think that each and every day for seniors to just kind of make a plan, think about what you're going to do each and every day to be active, uh, what can you do to improve your health and well being, uh, and for young folks, younger folks, for you to, to, you know, partner with your your parents, your grandparents, your neighbors, um, find a senior that, um, you know, you can um, um, partner with in a way, recognize that you're being very helpful. And there's a lot of wisdom out there that um, we can adopt from those seniors. As I said, I'm 71. And I'm always eager to talk to an 81 or 91-year-old because there's just so much that they can teach me each and every day.
0: A fine way to end this program. And I just want to thank Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin, for uh, being with us today.
1: Sure. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, to learn more about aging matters, you can visit our website, which is AgingMattersOnline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio and TV show content, in addition to the Aging Matters podcast, which of course you can find on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and we want to thank that company for joining us on uh, Aging Matters. So, thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. Remember, Age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.